visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are interviewing John Jantz from Duct Tape Marketing fame. Well, Ron, I'm really excited to have John on the show today. He is the author of four books, Duct Tape Marketing, Duct Tape Selling, The Commitment Engine, and The Referral Engine. And I have to admit, probably the author of the first blog post that I ever read online. <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> yes. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, John. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, that goes back a while, Ed. Yes, it sure does. And In fact, I was looking at this and I... At the danger of starting sort of in the middle of, of your, your topic, uh, you are the author, as far as I can tell, of near 3,500 blog posts. When did you start blogging? Yeah, um, August of 2003. Holy cow. So, so <laughs> was I, it yeah, even called blogging then? <laughs> we know it actually officially wasn't. It was um, originally called weblogs. Um, and the idea was, I think the technology was actually created by programmers who wanted to leave a log of what was done, what was compiled, or what was worked on, or what bugs were there for the crew coming in the next morning. And so they just hacked together this uh, quick little tool that could be syndicated uh, across RSS and used it as a web log, uh, meaning log of things that were done. And it got shortened. People saw the... The usefulness of the technology, I guess, as a communication tool and as a publishing tool, and it uh, eventually got shorted to blog. But my first uh, domain name, actually, the, the the page was called, you know, weblog.php <laughs> was, was, was the blog. That shows you how long ago that was. Wow. Wow. So, and, and, and again, at the risk of starting sort of in the middle, one of the things that you say in your books is that the, the blog is really the absolute starting point or the center, center of your marketing universe. Um, do you still think that's the case? Well, I, I don't know if a blog, I mean, the te- we're essentially just talking about technology, but it's what we do with a blog, I guess, or, or, or the, the ability to publish quickly in a way that can be consumed and um, distributed and shared. Um, so whatever tool we use, uh, you know, happens to be that, that the blogging technology, you know, WordPress, for example, um, has, has really kind of morphed into a full content management system. And that's really what is, is kind of the soul of a lot of businesses is the content that they produce uh, that, that really kind of helps guide people down the, the journey of buying. 
Got it. Okay. All right. Now let's now let's back it all up here. <laughs> and, um, again, welcome to the show. And I want to. You have a very interesting definition of marketing, which is simply this: to get someone who has a need to know, like, and trust you. Could you expound on that a little bit? Well, I think that's you know that's the idea of building an audience. I mean, I think we have to find people that are out there now. They have all these tools where where they can go and do all this research and maybe get to the point where they're going to pull the trigger on a product or a service or an engagement of some type before they actually ever even need to pick up the phone or, or send us an email. Um, and so I think that the job of marketing now is is building that audience, building that community of people who know I can trust you before maybe they ever decide that what you have to sell is something that can solve their, their pressing problem that they've identified today. Uh, the, the second half of that is then, of course, you have to turn no like, and trust into try, buy, repeat, and refer. And that's really kind of the whole you know, journey that we talk about. Yeah, and you call, you call that the, the, the marketing hourglass, not the marketing funnel, right? Yeah, and, and the, it obviously borrows from the funnel. But if you think about the hourglass shape, I think the real magic happens after those people kind of squeeze through that tight part of, of the funnel. But for a lot of people, that's where they just drop out. Um, and the idea behind the hourglass is that that's where you can actually expand your focus uh, on on the idea of repeat and, and refer business. I mean, the, the greatest source of leads uh, for most businesses is a group of happy customers. Yes, and we'll certainly get into that. I want to talk to you a little bit about your first book, Duct Tape Marketing, uh, because I think there's some. It's it's really a good foundation point for all of the other stuff that we hope to talk to you about, including commitment and referral. But let's start with this: How do you define marketing strategy, and how does that differ from what a lot of people think of as tactics or objectives or goals? You have and even mission within an organization. Well, I think that, you know, regardless of how we define it, I think that the organizations that, that, that truly grow and build momentum have a very clear idea, crystal clear idea of who makes an ideal customer for them and that they narrow their focus on those people. And, and it is, I use the word narrow and the word ideal uh, intentionally in that description because uh, uh, for a lot of people, it, I don't know what the business is, but uh, let's say you sell accounting software. Well, anybody who does accounting or needs accounting in their business uh, is your ideal customer. For, for a lot of people, that's how they define that. And what I want to suggest is that the over the, years, the tens of thousands of businesses that I have had a glimpse inside of, uh, the ones that really thrive, understand that the ideal customer for them is somebody who actually values what they do in a unique way, actually expects to uh, come to pay a premium for what their product or service does because of the experience they get, you know, over and above what the actual product does. And so that first, you know, understanding the behavior of our ideal clients and then finding a way to uh, develop a, a marketing strategy that, that not only allows us to create some sort of difference from everybody else who says they do what we do, but ultimately makes the competition irrelevant or at least changes the context of how your business, your particular business, is seen uh, in the market. And, and those two things, uh, having a narrowly defined ideal client and finding a way to, to really change the context of how you're seen in the market in, to to you know, to that ideal client. I mean, those two steps, I think, have to be taken, have to be put in place before we ever start talking about, okay, now what channel should we be in to, to try to generate leads? And, and 
one thing I want to pick up on is uh, your TEDx talk from Kansas City, which is fantastic. Yet that it, that that talk is mostly about purpose in an organization. Do you think that that purpose precedes this idea of marketing strategy? So you really should have the purpose first, and then build the marketing strategy, or is it the other way around, or is it just however way it comes out in your organization? Yeah, I, I think that in a lot of ways, great marketing strategy is. Uh, sort of manifest from having this purpose. In that talk that you're referencing, I uh, talked about a company that uh, realized that they, you know, they could solve their problem of finding. It was a janitorial services company, and they had trouble finding employees. I mean, it's you know, it's not the most glamorous profession. Um, and so, what they realized is that that you know that was having a dramatic impact on their business in a negative way. Um, and so that if they could solve you know, that constraint, they could build their business. And so what they did was they decided to invest in their people in such a way and in helping their people achieve dreams and, and maybe get out of the ability to uh, to do janitorial work that they were actually going to then be able to attract people who, who were there because they wanted to, who were there because they saw this as such a different company. And, and uh, that, of course, uh, went out to actually out to um, you know that the, their their customers experienced and felt that because of the day to day people that they ended up working with. So I think that can be a tremendous uh, marketing strategy. But I think a lot of times, um, it, it, you know, internal culture can in some ways just be the driver of whatever strategy you develop. There's no question that you can develop marketing strategies that are that, that are very powerful. In terms of you to you know making or helping you dominate your market, but I think there's no question that uh, things like culture and the and the organization and and you know what's true of the organization, what purpose is true of the organization, is really always going to come out no matter what. And then shifting to this idea of, of then marketing strategy, and I think you you probably have seen what I've seen is that all too often people substitute marketing tactics or I should say a group of marketing tactics for a strategy and and really what they don't they don't have a strategy they just have a group of tactics on that are unre- unreally re- that are unrelated to one another and yet that, that's where they seem to start yeah I, I think there's no question and it's amazing and it's not just business owners I mean I, I talk to marketers who uh, you know? Who've read my book and said, you know, that you were the first person who's you know who's talking about strategy in this way. Um, it, it's it seems odd to me, but when you uh, when you start with the, if if the first question is should we be on Facebook, then you know as a strategy, uh, then you know then you 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 realize that you know we have to go a little deeper. And, and part of it is. I mean, how many books have been written on strategy, business strategy, marketing strategy? Tens of thousands, probably, and and probably not one of them really agrees on what it is. And so, I think that's that's part of the challenge. Uh, but I think it's I think in a lot of ways, you know, I talk about strategy as marketing strategy, but for a lot of small to mid sized businesses, you know, that is the business strategy in a lot of ways. I mean, changing the context of how you're viewed uh, in the market is a pretty tremendous way for a lot of businesses to efficiently use the resources that they have to create a very profitable business, which is, I think, probably the purest definition of what strategy is. Sure. And I want to throw this out at you. A friend of ours, uh, Tim Williams, who does a lot of marketing work, has a uh, belief that strategy is almost more about what are you going to say no to than what are you going to actually do. And does that fit into your whole notion of the the ideal customer? Is say okay, let's define what this ideal customer is first, and then we got to start saying no to some of the people who don't fit into that 
that uh, that box. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. And and uh, there's no question. And that's really hard for a lot of people because, you know, that that, that person implied they might actually pay you for the work that they're <laughs> suggesting that uh, that you might do for them. And, you know, saying no to that is, you know, it's like, what if nobody shows up tomorrow and says they'll pay me? So that's that's hard for a lot of businesses. But that is that is how you get out of the discussion about price, or at least the discussion about price being the first <laughs> question is, is that you get known for serving a certain market in a certain way, and people who want that way or want that experience start coming to you and seeking you out and saying, how can you help me rather than you know, give me a deal. Um, and so that's, that's certainly uh, true of the of that idea of, of choosing your ideal client. But, uh, but think about, I mean, you know, we started the show off talking about 2003. Um, in 2003, I probably had six or seven channels, potential cha- channels that I would uh, push business owners into uh, to, to try to market and promote their businesses. Today, we routinely talk about 16 uh, channels. So I think that, that saying no uh, in, in your decisions about where you're going to go and go deeply to market your business has, has become uh, a pretty foundational element as well. Great. Well, we are up against our first break, John. So I want to uh, uh, thank you for appearing on the show. And we're going to have a hold you over here and have uh, Ron get into the conversation. I've been dominating it so far. But first, we want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at asktsoe at verisage.com. So feel feel free to send us an email. And we'd love for you to visit our website at thesoulofenterprise.com, which is where we post all of our show notes and previews. And I'll be sure to post the John Jance TEDxKC talk that we referred to in this first segment on that. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with John Jantz, the author of Duct Tape Marketing. And, and folks, we'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. We've received several great emails in the last uh, couple of weeks or so that we'll probably be discussing on uh, Free Rider Friday. And I'd like to remind you also to check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. John, I wanted to get your reaction. You know, I've come to appreciate the role of marketing in all businesses over the many years, especially as the result of studying Peter Drucker. And I wanted to read uh, a line by him, a couple lines by him, actually, and just get your reaction to it. Drucker said, because its purpose is to create a customer, the business enterprise has two, and only these two functions, marketing and innovation. Marketing and innovation produce results Everything else is nothing but costs. Do you do you agree with that? Is it all about marketing and innovation? Uh, absolutely. Every business is a marketing business, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And you know what's ironic? Um, uh, I love that quote. I'm very familiar with that. Uh, that's from the practice of management, uh, which is uh, interesting that, uh, that that was a take that was probably shocking for uh, managers of certain departments uh, to to hear that from at the time, you know, what, who was seen as their guru, but uh, I absolutely believe that uh, is so true of of businesses and and you know that that book was what 1956 or something like that, I think, uh, and it's, right. I think it's as relevant today as it was then. It, it's amazing how he had such an external focus on the business even for as much work as he did inside companies that he, he realized it was all about you know creating results outside of the organization his so-called marketing concept and I I too I too lo- just absolutely love that well and just that focus on innovation too which I think is something that marketing doesn't often <laughs> deliver uh, but certainly can and I also wanted to, John, get your reaction to this, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this too, and, and Ed and I have actually shared this with some audiences and have learned that it's quite controversial, but I think if you think about it, it makes absolute sense. Drucker said, if marketing were done perfect, selling would be unnecessary. Marketing and selling are not complementary and might be even adversarial. Oh, I think how many examples do you see uh, in in businesses where the sales and marketing Departments, if you will, are are at odds at, at you know at all times. They don't talk to each other. They don't have the same idea of what an ideal customer is. They, uh, in many cases, uh, don't share the same ideas of what the challenges of that ideal customer are. It's it's really a shame. But when you when you see organizations that see their their businesses not as you know sales and marketing and service, but maybe as 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 one sort of integrated outcome department. Those are the businesses that I think ha- end up having the customer's best interest in mind, and consequently, that's the best way to make a profit. You know, that's a really good point. Why do you think it is that marketing and sales are at loggerheads? Do you think one's tactical and one's strategic? Well, <laughs> I have some opinions on that. I think a lot of organizations um, create that themselves, and it has a lot to do with uh, the way that those two individuals in those two departments are compensated. I think that's actually one of the uh, the real challenges. Marketing, I, I think in some ways, uh, marketing is undervalued in a lot of organizations, and I think sales is overvalued in a lot of organizations because you know that salesperson, that 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 you know rainmaker, quite often is seen as the you know the the last attribute you know to why that person decided to to make a purchase, and so consequently was was absolutely necessary in the process. Um, but I think you're finding a lot of organizations today that are actually saying, 
you know, what if our engineers, you know, were part of marketing? And what if our salespeople were, were, were part of the marketing team? And what if we actually had all of these folks selling together so that they could help understand, you know, the, the, the complex sale today, the, 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 the number of stakeholders that are involved uh, in, you know, every deal that goes on today. You know, that to me has to be done as a, a collaborative kind of team sport. Um, and, and I think that if it's not, you know, you're still, you know, there still certainly are those people out there just kind of banging away at, uh, at the phones and banging away at, uh, at deals and making some of them happen. But uh, again, I think culture inside of organizations is what causes a great deal of the strife. Right. I think that's a really good point about the incentives of how people are compensated, too. And, you know, we do a lot of pricing work and, you know, salespeople uh, are, are slowly but surely losing their pricing authority because, of course, they're paid to make a sale. And the quickest way to make a sale is to cut the price. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a great book uh, that I read recently from Tim Sanders called Deal Storming. Or you familiar mm. with that at all? You should, you should have Tim on the show. Um, okay. I think he's, I think he's brilliant. Excellent. His first book I read by him was called Love is the Killer App. Um, and he had just come out of uh, his days uh, at Yahoo. Um, but uh, deal storming really, uh, the, the whole concept behind deal storming is that you know, sales today has to be a collaborative um, uh, approach. And that you need, if you're going to help people in organizations actually understand what their problems are and actually address the, the problems that they have, you're going, to, you're going to need to bring in you know, all kinds of resources from your organization and your team and that, that the salesperson, you know, the lone wolf salesperson out there trying to figure all of that out and make it all happen in a way that's valuable to the client probably is a myth. Hmm. You know, uh, Ed brought up Tim Williams. He's our Verisage colleague, and he does a lot. He's an advertising agency consultant. He used to run the ad agency that did the marketing campaign. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and he's got a great line: "The default purpose of marketing is not to increase sales, but rather to increase profit." And I was just wondering why? Why do you think it is so many businesses seem to have this market share myth where they just pursue revenue or growth of re- in revenue at all costs? And kind of ignore profitability, just thinking it will happen if they grow the top line. I think part of the challenge is, I mean, I, I go and speak at the occasional MBA uh, level class, and, and they're still teaching that in in businesses. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with that's that's something that seems to be very easy to measure uh, and track, and you know, set of goals and objectives against uh, profit. I think comes, uh, you know, you have to start factoring. In. I, I believe profit comes for a lot of organizations. Uh, at the level of trust that they're actually able to build in the market. And that that has a great deal to do with uh, how profitable a company is. Obviously, there are many, many factors in how they run their businesses and expenses and things. But I think some of the most profitable businesses are businesses that, that develop so much trust with their customers that they are able to charge a premium, they are able to pivot, they are able to make mistakes and recover. Um, and you know, how do you measure... Uh, trust and and how do you teach uh, building trust? I mean, I mean, to me, that's actually one of the uh, the the biggest goals of marketing today. You know, that's a great point too, because uh, my mentor George Gilder uh, says that profit is an index of your altruism, yeah. which I think is a great way to to phrase it. You know, it's about giving to others first before you get anything in return, and weaving trust into that. I think is 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 a natural component of it. Absolutely. 
What's your advice to businesses? Because I know you work with a lot of small and medium-sized businesses, and and we see a lot of disruption out there. You know, whether you're talking about Uber, Napster, Google Books, or driverless cars, what? How do you weave business models into this discussion and business model innovation? Because I think that's a big part of innovation as well. It's not just products and services, but actually business models. So, how do you talk about business model innovation? Yeah, I, you know, I'm probably not the the expert that is, you know, developing new business models out there that 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 are revolutionizing industries. That's um, I've never I've never felt that creative call. I guess <laughs> what I've really spent a lot of time uh, doing though is helping um, helping existing businesses understand what their customers, what their existing customers truly need and how to meet those needs. And I think a lot of innovation in the typical small to mid-sized business could actually come directly from the mouths of your existing customers. In fact, when we work with organizations that that want to grow, that want to innovate, um, instead of just saying, well, let's all go sit in a room and brainstorm about a great idea, uh, we come up with a couple concepts. We'll take them to their existing customers, and and you know, it might it might be an iterative process that goes something like this: Hey, we're thinking about doing X Y Z. Okay. Hey, here's what X Y Z might look like. Here's part of X. Would you like to try it? <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and really kind of develop this with your customers. I think that is actually from a, whether it's a product or service or campaign or business model, uh, to me, I think that's where some, some of the great insight lies. There's, there's no questions that, that, that question that there are people out there that have done things that, uh, that have revolutionized entire industries. And quite frankly, had they gone out and asked their customers, their customers might have said, no, we don't want that, or no, we don't need that, or that seems weird. Um, so it's not the, uh, the end-all, be-all, but I think it's a, a pretty terrific way to consistently uh, hit, hit singles and doubles <laughs> with uh, um, the, the, the products and services and innovations that you want to create. Right. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs used to say that customers don't innovate, they iterate. But I I think your point is well taken for, uh, you know, we do a lot of work, obviously, with professional firms, accountants and lawyers and things like that. And and I do wish they would involve their their current customers more in their innovative products and things like that, because it's an established base. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, man, man, think think about how many companies have come out with you know the the big giant launch of the new product only to have their customers go huh, <laughs> um, whereas had they had they gone to them they might have found out that maybe there wasn't even a need for that or had they packaged it this way or priced it this way or delivered it this way then everybody would have gotten excited and and instead they have this big flop on their hands. Right, John. I have to ask you this because you you probably hear this over and over. We hear it everywhere we go, and that is, I don't care what industry you're talking to, from funeral directors to accountants, they all say the same thing: we're becoming a commodity, or what we sell becomes a, a commodity. What are some of your strategies? And I know we've only got a couple minutes, but what are your some some of your strategies to help businesses stop this commodity thinking? Because I think a lot of it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I think there's absolutely no question about that. I mean, one of the, you know, I get asked that question all the time and, and um, I speak to industry groups who, you know, most of the people in, in attendance uh, believe that uh, to be true. And so you're right, it is somewhat self-fulfilling. I, I, you know, this idea of changing the context is probably the greatest uh, tool for doing uh, just what you're talking about, getting out of the commodity business. I mean, every industry, I go and I'll speak to a group of 
I think you mentioned funeral directors or, you know, remodeling contractors. I mean, groups that feel like they're under price pressure, you know, all the time. And there, there will always be one or two or three people in, in, in the room that will kind of say, well, you know, things are pretty good over here. <laughs> I mean, um, and, and a lot of it is the mindset. But with that mindset, there has to be some way in which you, you really change the context. So, um, I'll give you a quick example if we have the time. Sure. Um, I was working with a, um, uh, an architect uh, firm that you know was kind of beaten up against uh, a lot of the general contractors were taking away their business, um, and uh, you know they they pretty much had left to say, well, yeah, we can design buildings. Here's what our cost will be, um, and so uh, we we went out and talked to their customers. A lot of their customers actually said, yeah, but you know they they do good work. But what we really love is they help us get paid faster. And so you know, after hearing that a couple of times, we, we dug in a little bit. It turns out that they had some great processes. They actually had a couple of city council people and people on zoning boards. And so they had some great ways to kind of cut through the red tape. They knew where all the, the bodies were buried, so to speak. Um, and, and so their projects got started faster. And so the contractors got paid faster. And so we made that their, their, their primary strategy or at least message to communicate uh, to this, this contract. So if you think about the the, the one uh, architect who is lining up saying, you know, here's all of our great projects, and, and our guys are lining up saying, we'll help you get paid faster. Well, the contractor wanted to know more about that <laughs> um, because that was a huge issue for them. And so in some ways, um, changing the context or an innovation can come about just if you fully understand, you know, where the greatest pain point of your market is. And instead of uh, simply uh, refusing to change because nobody else in our industry does that. Right. It kind of reminds me of what Jerry Garcia used to say. You don't have to be better. You just have to be different. <laughs> In many cases, yeah. And, and, and bonus points for being remarkable at something yeah. different. Yeah, great point. Well, John, this has been fantastic. Um, uh, we need to take a break, but and then we'll get uh, Ed back in here. But folks, I'd like to remind you, you can send, you can send Ed or myself an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. We know many of you are listening on demand. We really appreciate those iTunes reviews, so keep them coming. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. <laughs> We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
the business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everyone, and we're talking with John Jantz, the author of Duct Tape Marketing, Duct Tape Selling, the Commitment Engine, and the Referral Engine. And I'm going to jump get to the Referral Engine in just a second, John, but I had a couple things I just wanted to mention in your conversation with Ron. You know, I one of the things I try to do to get people out of that commodity thinking is I, I ask them, uh, do, do you buy the cheapest toilet paper? <laughs> and no hands go up, usually. And uh, and then and then I say, do you, so do you th- really think that you're more of a commodity than toilet paper? And it's 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 actually quite sad to see that there's some professionals who actually do think that. But <laughs> yeah, some some of them are just stealing it from the airport or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, one of the things I really loved in duct tape marketing is it's actually a chapter heading, and then you talk about it for quite some time, and it's something that's near and dear to both Ron and myself. And it and the, the the chapter heading is is price is a function of value, and boy, we could not agree more with that statement because we, we're working with, as Ron said, CPAs and and lawyers, a lot of whom think that that price is actually a function of cost. And I've often said that if I could send accountants to the Bart Simpson whiteboard of life, I would have them write of 150 times, price does not come from cost. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, about this whole whole uh, area of pricing, and why do you think it's so often taken out of the hands of marketers in small businesses and and turned over to you know either a technical person or or a bean counter? Just seems very odd to me because uh, you know Ron said that that Peter Drucker um, mentioned Peter Drucker earlier, and the four P's of marketing price is one of them. Yet that seems to be taken out of the hands of marketers, and I just don't understand that. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with, you mentioned the idea of, of cost. I mean, there are a lot of people that sit around and, and factor these things that, and or they look at competition and say, well, this is what the market will bear, and you know that's why we have to be at this price. And so I do think a lot of people see it as, as a technical function. Um, but, I mean, how many, the, the, the world is littered with examples of companies that, that charge an absolute premium for, in some cases, the same product. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, look, BMW charges much more or, or Lamborghini or Rolls-Royce or whatever charges much more than Chevy for you know, basically four tires that roll down the road. Uh, those are, in some people's opinion, vastly different products. But uh, imagine uh, you know, somebody who's selling, in many cases, shoes. Great example. Uh, Zappos is not the cheapest. You know, just alert uh, people. <laughs> there are there are other places you can buy uh, Adidas or Converse or whatever shoes uh, that that is that are cheaper than uh, at Zappos. But people flock there by the millions because they have a different brand, they have a different experience. Uh, people people want to be a part of what they're doing, and so you know, I think I think there are many many examples of of this idea of of being a function of value, and what I think. I think people have trouble with is that they assume they get to assign value and it's the customer, it's the market, it's the prospect who actually assigns that value. Uh, there are lots of people that would, you know, you for this, this 
$3 cup of coffee, or I guess it's probably $5 cup of coffee in some places <laughs> now, um, you know, wouldn't begin to even think about paying that much for, for coffee. And there's a lot of people that, that that's, you know, they wouldn't dream of drinking any coffee but that. And so they have assigned a much higher value to the experience they get of drinking uh, the, the, the pour over Yurgashev uh, coffee at the local coffee shop. Well, uh, uh, what I want to throw in there is is actually the the big margin products at the coffee shops are tea because <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the one that I can never figure out. Man, two I can make it at home for two cents a cup, but you want to make two bucks for a cup of tea? Holy cow! Um, anyway, let's 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 move on to to your some of your other work, and uh, you have a, a great chapter in one of your books on the perfect referral. And Ron and I are big fans of of, of re- referral based marketing. Talk a little bit about the perfect referral. Well, you know, I um, I have to admit, I wrote that book in two thousand and nine, uh, and I can't remember what I was referencing. <laughs> oh, okay. No I'm being I'm being completely honest. Except I think that in that particular case, I was I was talking about a referral that has been properly educated. And um, is that do Do you remember that's, the- cor- that's absolutely correct? Yes, <laughs> okay. really doing a great job to educate the the referral on what it is you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's so many companies out there that uh, that that you know want referrals, maybe even get referrals, and um, and and typically in in some cases, you know, they're good referrals, and maybe 50 percent of, uh, of the instances they're, you know, they're not they're not good referrals, they're not a fit at all, and in some ways that's sort of awkward, right? Your best customer tells you, oh, you ought to talk to you know these guys, and they call you up, and and now you've got to say. Oof. We don't, you know, we don't do that, or you're too small, or you're too big, or whatever it is, um, and and so you know, one of the ways that companies, I think, really get the best, not only get more referrals, but get the highest quality referrals is they they do first off they know who makes an ideal uh, referral for them, but then they they educate their 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 champions. You know, every company's got typically has customers or partners out there that 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 really love what they do, that really want to see them succeed, that are are motivated to talk about them. And so I think it's I think it's important to spend the time to to teach those people how to even how to even explain what it is that you do or why it is that you charge a premium for uh, for what it is uh, that you do. So I think that that's um, that that's part of that idea of getting the, the perfect referral. And I think you can take that even a, st- a couple steps farther. You know, teach them what you're going to do <laughs> with that referral. Um, so uh, you know, and bring bring those great customers, uh, those those uh, referral champions together, so that they can learn you know more and more about what you do. And they can appreciate kind of the community that you've built around uh, what you do. I, I think even, you know, even building, going as far as building a, a, a platform for uh, your strategic partners so that you can do more than just uh, trade leads or, or send ideas to each other, but you can actually collaborate in the, in the process of building each other's businesses. And it's so important, John, because your point is so key to educate them on that because especially with regard to price, you know, one of the things that we see organizations in professional organizations who do such a great job at referrals are also educating their their referral, the people that refer them, hey, look, we're not going to be the cheapest. Right. And so, right. so the so the referral already has that from a, a, the mindset when they're walking in the door, which is just great. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that some of that comes down to sort of the nuance of here's how to explain what we do, and and maybe if we're not the cheapest, uh, that explanation might be about why we're not the cheapest and what value you're going to receive by virtue of the fact that we're not the cheapest because we use better products and we use better processes or you know whatever it is. I think actually going as far as doing some marketing training uh, can be can be a really great way to do it. Yeah, and I've often told the story of my my dentist that I have, John, who only takes new patients via referral. Yep. There's that's the only way you can get in to see him is via referral, which I I think is just a it's easy, and he's a great dentist, um, and and does that fantastic job. I, and I love that idea. You t- you mentioned that to actual pro- to to professionals, accountants, lawyers, and they're like, oh, we couldn't survive on that. I'm like, huh, really. <laughs> You know what's interesting though is I think if you really got them to look at their their customer base, uh, probably eighty percent of their customer base came yeah. by some some word of mouth or some way of referral, and they just don't realize it because they're not doing anything to tap that. <laughs> yep, that's exactly correct. You know, they say they couldn't survive on it, and yet they they probably do. Like you said, eighty to ninety percent of them are coming in via referral anyway, that's and right. and then you then you wonder why are you spending all of this 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 time on this other marketing that doesn't seem to be working when you <laughs> you should really just continue to tap into the reference, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, you know, because what's interesting is, I mean, so few uh, businesses, even those those businesses that I find that that are generating majority of their business by way of referral are are really doing nothing to make that you know eighty percent or to to really amplify that. I mean, every business that that gets a referral uh, has probably, I mean, there's probably um, you know eighty or or you know ninety. Uh, referrals that they could get from those same people that uh, if they would really just do something about uh, stimulating that. Yep, great, great point. Well, you know what? We're we're up against our last break here, but uh, we want to remind you that you can visit our website at thesoulofenterprise.com. And just please check out our live events page. We've been posting some new stuff up there where both Ron and or I will be appearing, and we'd love to see you. Um, one of those events is the Professional Pricing Society's event in Chicago coming up in May, and we'd love to see you there. So if you're up Chicago way, it, it, uh, I think it's May 11th, uh, please take uh, a look May 3rd, at us. May 4th. Third and fourth. Sorry, I have something stuck in my head. Thanks, Ron. (laughs) But uh, right now we want to hear from our other sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. That changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and here we are on the soul of enterprise and we have john jance we've got one more segment with him we want to thank john for being on the show john i want to ask you about your major business influences. Who, who? You mentioned Peter Drucker earlier, so I'm sure that that might be one. But who else is a major business influence on you in your career? Yeah, no, no question, Peter Drucker. Um, I, Michael Gerber actually had a pretty profound uh, impact. Uh, really, is written one book that is kind of goes up there on a lot of people's uh, shelves, uh, entrepreneur shelves. Uh, written in the '80s, early '80s, called the E Myth. Um, and later retitled the E-Myth Revisited. He was the first person, I think, that really really kind of hit uh, the nail on the head with this idea of, of you know, small businesses and systems thinking for small businesses. Um, and that really influenced a great deal of duct tape marketing and, and, and the work that I've done. Uh, so no question there. And I think like a lot of marketers, uh, Seth Godin has uh, always been a great influence and uh, fortunately uh, turned into a great friend as well. Oh, wow. That's great. So how about a non-business hero or influence of yours? <laughs> well, there's a really obscure reference uh, that, well, I, I, I'm trying to think now non, if this is non-business or, or, or not, because he's, he's certainly an architect, pretty famous architect. His name is Christopher Alexander. Um, and he wrote uh, a series of books that were, were geared towards architects. Um, the you know pattern language, the organ experiment, um, but uh, I find that he, first off he's a beautiful writer, um, and and the way he writes about communities and and um, you know the the my favorite book is called the timeless way of building, uh, and he talks about uh, the way communities interact and the way that that cities and communities and towns need to be built, I think is about as applicable to business as anything that I've ever written, or I'm sorry, ever, ever read. Um, and I, I constantly cite that series of, of books that were probably from the 70s, I think. John, this is Ron again, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but all this stuff is so interdependent that thinking about the whole decommoditization of things and, and, and getting over that self-fulfilling prophecy, one of the things that actuaries have taught me is if what you sell entails any amount of risk, then by definition, it's not a commodity. And I'm just wondering how do you advise companies to deal with risk, either the risk their customers face in buying their product or using their product or service, or just in, in dealing with that business. Did I, how do I know I picked the right business? You know, that old slogan, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. How, how do you deal with risk? Or how do you advise businesses sure. deal with risk? Well, well, I think there's a couple things. I think that if, if that exists inside of your business inherently, I think one of the things that you have to do is address it, acknowledge it, build the, the right expectation, and then educate around it. 
Um, for, for example, I don't know if this is going to meet your example, but w- what popped to mind is uh, a remodeling contractor that I worked with years ago. And, and what they found was that, you know, they, they were not the cheapest. They were by, by far and away, they were, they were much more expensive. And so, you know, we were really trying to get at what it is that, that people really appreciated. Why'd they pay them a premium? And, you know, some of it became reputation and trust and, you know, their neighbor had used them. And so uh, sometimes they got the business uh, for that reason. But we also discovered that that the way they went about doing the, the the remodeling process was much different. They communicated along the way. They said when things were going to be bad. They said when things were going to be good. Because in, inherently, if you've ever remodeled a home, you know you get those plans and you pick out the tile and everybody's happy. And then drywall sanding happens, you know, somewhere in there, and and it's miserable. And there's nothing they can do about it. it does you know? There's no way to do that well or to to do that you know without making a mess. And so um, we actually used to uh, communicate the 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 remodeling curve, we called it, and talked about, you know, when you're going to be happy, when you're going to be sad. And we just really found that that focus on communicating the risk, so to speak, um, was something that nobody else was addressing and doing. And that really allowed them to stand out. That's excellent because customers are going to think about it and you might as well be at that conversation. Yeah. And, and I think it really showed, in their case, it showed that they had a much more professional uh, process they, they they knew you know he they, they you know they talked about every single step along the way and so it really built the right I think proper expectation you know even for those people that weren't looking to uh, for a cheaper deal it, it, it actually minimized the instances when you know they might have somebody that, that wasn't happy if they got you know when they became unhappy they were able to go remember we told you you were going to be here <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, along those same lines with risk management and I guess this is more for service businesses uh, than product but why don't we see more guarantees from companies like along the lines of Zappos or even FedEx, you know, absolutely positively overnight or you don't pay. It just seems like so many companies don't stand behind what they sell from a service standpoint. Yeah, I, I think some of that is is fear themselves. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure it's based in, well, certainly in some cases they're on. They're unsure whether or not they actually do deliver uh, what they promise, so that that may be part of it. But I think there's there's this inherent fear that that gosh everybody will rip us off, and and you know a couple of the cases that you cited, um, I think that uh, that guarantee has been fundamental to them being the market leader, um, and and so obviously if you're going to make that um, that kind of guarantee, the, one of the things I love about it, it's kind of like uh, you know burning the boats, you know when when you <laughs> when you go you know go attack the new the the new island and. And there's no way to escape now. It's like if we're gonna make that, yeah, we're going to make that guarantee, then we sure as heck better perform or we're all going to be out of this. Oh, great point. And what's your advice for companies that do RFPs? Well, stop it. Um, <laughs> you don't have but, to say anymore, John. That's you. <laughs> but but particularly, you know, the 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 you, your dentist that takes uh, by referral. Imagine you're sending your den- that dentist uh, an RFP saying we're considering you know you uh, as our dentist. I mean, it, you know, the the companies that that are really left in many cases to respond to RFPs are are certainly you know they're they're immediately in many cases joining joining the uh, the race to the bottom. Right. You know, we had Rory Sutherland on our show last year, and he's uh, from Ogilvy and Mather in the UK's vice chairman. And he believes that ad agencies 
need to become behavioral economists, understand how people, humans make decisions, not just how advertising and marketing works, but how humans decide. And he thinks if they don't become behavioral economists, they're going to become irrelevant. Have you kind of jumped into the whole behavioral economics and nudge and choice architecture and all of that? How how has it influenced your work and thinking? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would ever claim that uh, that that we do uh, anything that academic sounding, uh, but uh, but there's no question that that, that the basis of um, really everything that I've done is is about you know understanding what the customer wants, what they don't have, what they fear, um, and and I think a lot of you know if you're talking about agencies, I think a lot of agencies are actually uh, um, I have a good friend that works in an agency in Kansas City, and they have an anthropologist. Um, you know, right. as as part of the team. I mean, and so I think people understand that 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 this idea of you know how we influence behavior or how we understand behavior is is not as simple as you know running a focus group. No, great point. You know, Crispin Porter, it's a pretty respected advertising agency, I believe, out of Miami. They they don't call their folks account executives; they're called cultural anthropologists. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> they really do try and change the culture, uh, and and some of their campaigns have done that. Uh, yes. What uh, what companies do you admire from a marketing perspective? Who 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 do you believe gets it right? Oh, that's a great great question, and I don't have a great answer. Um, so I'm stalling for a while, which is kind of hard to do on radio, isn't it? <laughs> you can't see me juggling. <laughs> Usually, the one that comes top to mind is, you know, Apple. Well, yeah. So, so obviously, but I didn't want to. I did. I was trying to stay away. That from was too the, easy. The cliche. Go <laughs> on the nose. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I I don't have any great. Oh, I, I tell you who I love. I lo- I'll give you one that is probably well enough, uh, well known enough is um, REI. Um, which makes okay. you know, outdoor yeah. equipment. Um, I just think they're they're what they do. I think uh, so well is that uh, it's really about. I mean, obviously they sell a lot of product, uh, but it's also about the outdoor community and the outdoor life and and you know preserving that. And I, I guess maybe I, I have a special interest there, but I would say Patagonia, you know, does a great job with that as sure. well. Um, in that same uh, category, I mean, they spend as much time sending me stuff. Uh, to talk about you know how to extend the life of my clothes and how to recycle my clothes that I buy from them than, than they do you know trying to sell me new stuff. Right, I think both those organizations are really good examples of of clear purpose. Yeah. How about how about from the past? How about from history? Any any admirers or heroes in marketing from well, the past? You, you know, I I I've sort of. Um, lost this view, but there was a point in time where I thought Southwest was incredible. Mm-hmm. Southwest Airlines uh, yep. was incredible. And uh, particularly when Herb Kelleher was kind of the face of the brand, I, I think they've sort of seemed like at times they've fallen in line with the airline industry in general of late. But uh, there there was a point at which um, I really admired what they did because they were very true. You know, even when they you know, serve cheap drinks and cheap, you know, peanuts and things. It was, that was really on brand for them in a lot of ways. And the people they hired were, you know, weren't, weren't, you know, glamorous. They were fun. And, and I think that was very much on brand for them as well. And uh, so I, I certainly, uh, that, that's a company that I really have, uh, I do a lot of business with because, uh, sure. because of those things. 
Well, you know, I'd have to say Stanley Marcus from Neiman Marcus. I, he did some major innovations in marketing. And also Charles Revson. I think his Fire and Ice campaign is probably still one of the best marketing campaigns ever. Well, John, this has been fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate it. And, uh, folks, we will po- post full show notes and get John's TED Talk up there and links to his books and his site and where you can contact him. Ed, what's on store for next week? Well, we have two possibilities, Ron. We're trying to get something squared away with the interviewee in the UK, Paul Kennedy. If not, we're going to talk about some a project management topic. Oh, excellent. Well, if if we do, I'll be from the UK, so I'll be coming at you live from across the across the pond. So either way, I look forward to it, and I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>